WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Ricky Kelly is a plumber. He and his wife Cherie have three children together. Two are grown and out of the house. The youngest, a teenager, in a fit of teen rebellion, actually launched the idea for one of their next documentaries. She turned up her nose at a family tradition, eating chitlins during the holidays. While chitlins is in the works to explore the history, evolution, and spiritual significance of eating and preparing pig intestines, Ricky and Cherie Kelly are also making a film about plumbers. Remember, Ricky himself is a plumber, and we'll hear the story of his work with a fellow plumber, a guy named Mike, who is, like Ricky, African-American, and who accidentally outed himself to Ricky as Mike G. of the Jungle Brothers, an iconic hip-hop star from the early days. The first film from the Kellys, Black Beach, White Beach, which screened at several film festivals, including Kukaloris and the North Carolina Black Film Festival, explores a tale of two bike weeks in South Carolina. For more than 80 years, Myrtle Beach has hosted Black Bike Week and Harley Bike Week, that latter being the majority white event. The NAACP has filed suit at least twice over what it claims are stark differences between the way each bike week is managed and ultimately how the bikers are treated. At least twice a a court has agreed with the NAACP's complaints. Ricky rides in Black Bike Week and decided it was time to tell the story from his point of view, so he bought a camera, quickly found support, and the Kellys spent nearly $100,000 of their own money to make the film. And having their own money to make the films they want to make is part of this story. Today we'll explore what's actually changed since Black Beach, White Beach was released in 2017, their new projects, and how these two people with no prior filmmaking experience are building their audience. Ricky, Cherie Kelly, welcome to Coastline. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Ricky Kelly, how long have you actually been attending Black Bike Week? How long did that go on? I started in the 90s. Um, So it was this big festival, of course, you know, in the black community we all knew, and and bike riders, of course, knew. And I would go down and just be a, a great experience, you know, with the camaraderie of meeting you know, other bikers, but there was a police presence that was kind of disheartening, and they tended to really crack down on us down there, and I felt like, and it just would get worse and worse every year as the as the event got bigger and bigger, you know, and I once went to a another, uh, the, the other rally, and it was just totally different, you know. Uh, I couldn't believe the, 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 um, the lack of Lack of days. Of, it was just really not a lot of police presence. Uh, the people were doing whatever they wanted to do to enjoy themselves. And I just felt that it was just an unfair treatment that we would have to deal with, you know, this overwhelming police presence. And, and they didn't. And then, of course, in 2014, there was a murder. And that really clamped down on things. And it had nothing to do with Black Bike Week. It was some young locals that had got into some beefs and... and yeah. And that um, is what transpired. And the city took it upon themselves to say, okay, well, we need the mayor, said we need for this event to end. Even um, the uh, governor at the time was, you know, trying to shut the event down. But we as riders knew that 
that, you know, this event brought families together. Generations have been coming here. You know, you can't just arbitrarily end an event because of some kids that got, you know, um, involved in some some law-breaking. And in this documentary, you kind of, you tell the history of Black Bike Week, but you also kind of methodically break down the differences between the majority white bike week and and how African American riders are treated. And we, we actually have a clip from that documentary that kind of looks at what happened and how the public dialogue changed after that shooting happened. Let's listen. The Harley is an older group of people that come to Myrtle Beach and, and the surrounding area. The early 30s to 70. So it's a big difference. There's a friend of mine who has a hotel said that he has a group of Harley people that come down every year. They will get up in the mornings, ride to eat breakfast, ride around some during the day, get back late in the afternoon, go get dinner, and then sit around the pool and drink beer the rest of the night. They're starting to age out a lot. And so uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens down the road with, with the, the youth in the Harley because Harley's are not cheap. I think Harley Week is coming back. Uh, I think at this point in time, based on the last couple of years, and I'm, I'm down there every year, um, I've seen the crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger. And Black Bike Week is a young group. I'd say early 30s would be the oldest. They sleep in the daytime and play at night. Age is the big difference. Beach should have been something better. It should have been something more honest. The secrets of our past get carried into our current situation, and so much of our life becomes an iceberg. And it's not only cultural, but it's almost like a virus. There are two events in Myrtle Beach. For far too long, these events have been separate and unequal. One event is welcome, and one event was not welcome. When black bikers came to town, they were arrested for minor infractions. And there was a two-to-one arrest disparity between Harley Week and Black Bike Week. People were arrested for very minor things. We're not going to arrest somebody just for a misdemeanor-type dumb thing, okay? If we're going to arrest somebody, then they're going to be a problem. And that, that white voice that we heard at the beginning and at the end, who was that? That's Mayor John Rose. He passed away just recently from COVID, unfortunately. Rest in peace, Mr. Rose. And I I, I credit him with it's a it's a funny story how we when 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 I was, you know, formulating the plan for the movie and I knew that I need to speak to uh the city leaders about this, I called down and um tried to set up and it wasn't happening and I was in a editing class we were in an editing class and one of our classmates a young white girl said uh, that you know love the project the idea of the project and wanted to give us help so I used her to call and set up the uh, 
So there's a little disagreement here about. So Cherie, you actually made the appointment I did. with the and mayor. Over the phone, they confirmed that it was okay to set it up, and then when we got there, right? Yeah, it's been okay. a little while. Right. It, yeah. So, okay. I mean, it was 2017 that the film came right. out. So, so. the face of Katia. Um. So we went there, um, set up the appointment, made all the arrangements, came up with the crew. We were there to shoot, and they came up and said, "Oh, yeah, he's not here today." And it's like. Mm, yeah, he is here because we're here for an interview. And so when they turn us away, I told my husband what happened. They released my elevator. We had all these little tight guys in the equipment coming up. And so I come back downstairs. He's like, why are you coming back? And I was like, oh, they said we can't do the interview because he's not here. He was like, no, we have to get it done. So um, he thought he was like, oh, they're probably turning you away because of your skin. And I was like, mm, yeah, I didn't think about that. So. So like, wait a second. I just want to make mm-hmm. sure I'm understanding yeah. what's happened up to now. So you're in this editing class, and you had this um, this white girl. So he was referencing the young lady, Katia, who was in our class because we actually took her with us as a camera person. So and she was she, kind of in front. So they, She was not. I was the face. Okay. And so okay. when I got there, she was a part of our team gotcha. from the editing class. And when we, when, I got, when we got there, and we realized that she would, they were turning us away, then we pushed Katia up front as the person that was heading off the reason for the interview. Right. Katia was, like, basically the face of the, you know, like, they wanted a white face. Uh, the, the secretary was not going to give us an interview. It was clear because she was not expecting, I guess my wife, she expected my wife to be white and the crew to be white. And when we got there, it was like, no, you're not going to be able to do the interview. And uh, Katia, thank, thankfully, stood up, um, you know, stepped forward and was like, hey, we didn't drive down here for nothing. And she was like a little pit bull. And um, we were able to uh, get the interview. But back to um, uh, Mayor Rose, I, I credit him for being brutally honest about what was going on down there and his feelings about it. He didn't want, he told me he straight out of his mouth that he didn't want the event there. He would love for the LPG uh, A tour, the uh, the golfing tour, to come down in our place during that weekend. So they had a plan to get us the event, you know, Black Bike uh, Week uh, wiped out. And um, so that was racist treatment when it came to making the film. He was talking in that interview about the age differences between the white bikers mm-hmm. and the black bikers. Absolutely. Is that what it was? No. And, and we use that. You know, I use that because I felt like, you know, to, to show the uh, the contradiction. But he was not, that wasn't the case. And, I mean, it's all types that go to both rallies, old and young. And that was his way of, like, just some old people that are down here and you young people come down here and tear things up. And, you know, we did the crime statistics and found that, you know, Basically, they were the same, you know, the, and there was 10 times more black people coming than it was of them, and crime was still basically the same. So it was just a, a misnomer. They, they, um, so the claim that there was more crime during Black Bike Week, based on statistics, did right. not hold up at all. Not mm-hmm. at all. Not at all. Not at all. We had, again, you, you know, every year at both rallies, people die from, you know, um, auto accidents, uh, motorcycle accidents. Uh, I think they average like four every year on both sides. And then the crime statistics, like, you know, you have Florida and you have um, speeding and these type of things uh, that keep going. Um, they happen every year. Um, but 
And we're going to hear more about this. We're going to hear from Governor, former Governor Nikki Haley when we come back from this break. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration of the world of documentary filmmaking with Ricky and Cherie Kelly. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Cherie and Ricky Kelly can legitimately call themselves filmmakers these days, but for years, the Kellys thought of themselves as hardworking middle class Americans. The family's income from Ricky's work as a plumber and Cherie's work as an administrative professional. But in 2017, their first film, Black Beach, White Beach, A Tale of Two Bike Weeks in South Carolina, came out, and their ideas about what was possible for them fundamentally changed. Now they have two two additional documentaries in the pipeline, which we're going to hear about today. Uh, And before we get back to how you put this story together of Black Beach, White Beach, and, and we hear from, at the time, Governor Nikki Haley just talking about her view of the festival, I need to ask you just about what gave you the audacity to think that you could possibly make a film? Because we hear young people coming out of, you know, into their adult lives or on the cusp of their adult lives, and they don't know enough to know that all the obstacles that might be in the way. But both of you, you know, you were well into your adult years. You'd worked as professionals doing, you doing a trade, Ricky, and you in clerical and administrative work, Cherie. What made you suddenly say, sure, we can make a film? Well, it, honestly, it was from a, a friend of mine. He, he, We used to go down to the bike rallies together, and he was my road dog. And on the way back, I would be, you know, frustrated about our treatment. And I would always, like, the whole way back, man, it would have been this if they hadn't did, you know, this type of thing. And... Unfortunately, he passed away. He was 41 years old. He had his very first child that was six months old. He moved back from New York down south, had a child, and just dropped dead at work, right? So as I'm at his funeral, we're at his funeral, and I, it's it's almost like he spoke to me. He was like, it's now it's time to tell a story, you know, like, go ahead, Big Rick. And... Um, so that's where it came from for me, honestly. Like, not like he like physically spoke to me, but I felt his presence of like, now this is the time to do it. You know, I've talked about it for years. He's, you know, he's got tired of hearing me talking about it, and here he is laying in front of me. You know, so that's where it came from. And we went home, and we were sitting at the kitchen table, and I told my wife, I said I wanted to uh, do this documentary. And she knew or had heard me talk about it, but I never, like, with the, you know, the seriousness of I really want to do this film. And the good thing is that I'm blessed to have a great wife that stood by me and said, let's do it. She didn't say, you don't know anything about making movies. You don't, you know, she was just, let's do it, you know. And um, I bought a camera, and and I knew I was locked in after I spent $1,000, and 
But like I said, thank God for this woman here that encouraged me and and made me feel that I could do it. How do you feel, Sherry, when you hear him talk that way and get so emotional about about your support as well? It's very heartwarming, but I do believe in him as a person. And so knowing that he had the background of communications, um, I knew that he could, you know, tackle or handle anything because that's just a passion that's in him. He is a people person and... He's driven to pull the best out of people, so it just kind of happens naturally. And I just believe that if he wanted to tell that story, he could get what he needed to tell the story. So, Yeah. So continuing with the opposition to Black Bike Week, this this shooting happened, and uh, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley at the time held a press conference, and this is what she said. While subsequent investigations determined that the crime, its perpetrators, and its victims had little to do with the bike festival, city leaders and officials quickly denounced the festival as being to blame, calling for it to stop. Last weekend, it is time for that bike fest to come to an end, and that is the way that I am going to talk to the elected officials of Atlantic Beach, and I think it's time that everybody in Orange County come together and say, no more. We are For the small community of Atlantic Beach, where the festival originated, this was just another blow to its self-esteem. Already impoverished by the economic forces of desegregation and financially ignored by the festival it created, Atlantic Beach continues to decline. The state can make sure that we let the people of Atlantic Beach know we will help them in every way strengthen their community. But we are not going to promote any events going forward that do any harm to the citizens of South Carolina. And that's exactly what happened. So it is now time um, for us to ask the elected officials of Atlantic Beach to come forward. Let's come up with a game plan that works well for that community. But let's make sure what is happening in Atlantic Beach is truly a reflection of South Carolina as a whole. If a white person performs in a certain way as a young man, it's considered indiscretions of youth. You let the same black man get on a motorcycle, do the same things, and it's considered thuggish behavior. If you look at the acts, a lot of them are much the same. If you look at the perception of the acts, it's very, very, very different. What's happening in Myrtle Beach every year is racist. And there was a white voice that we heard you use this. He's a journalist that you use throughout the documentary of Black Beach, White Beach. Who is that man? That's, um, He's a South Carolina journalist, and we can come back and, and talk about him. But while Nikki Haley is talking about the fact that this has to end, this Black Bike Week, there's a shot, you're panning kind of across a building that looks like a closed up, a boarded up child development center that's sitting on a weedy, overgrown lot. And she's talking about doing whatever she can to help strengthen the Atlantic Beach community, which is, which is adjacent to, to Myrtle Beach. What did that shot mean to you? Did you feel like Atlantic Beach really got the support officials said that they would provide? No, they didn't at all. And the mayor of Atlantic Beach said that the only way that they would, that Nikki Haley told him that the only way that they would help them is if they ended that um, 
Black Bike Week, you know. Um, then they would offer assistance to the city, and he was like, you know, you know, we're a city just like any other city in the state of uh, South Carolina. We shouldn't have to, you know, kowtow to what you want in order to get services for this small community, you know. Um, for those that don't know, you know, that is the host city. That's where it all started for us because uh, Atlantic Beach was is a black township, it was a black city, and this was the only place that black people could go for years, and that's where my parents met, actually, in um, Atlantic Beach. So it's always had a special place in my heart, and that's where I would go. You know, the big bike rally, you see a lot of the bikers in Myrtle Beach, but the real bikers that understood and respected the culture of Black Bike Week were in Atlantic Beach. They didn't even really go to Myrtle Beach, and, and that was for, like, the young people and some of the people that were the touristy-type things. But for those that wanted the the camaraderie and the Black Bike Week experience, you had to go to Atlantic Beach to experience that. And, of course, that city is in um, economic... It's, it's only a, a four-block city, a small township, but... Um, I mean, they're seeing better days, you know, and um, the state isn't, again, doing anything to really help them. And your parents used to call Atlantic Beach the Black Pearl? Yes. Well, this, yeah, they that was the, the term for everyone that went there. It was the Black Pearl. It was the only place that black people could go, you know, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, you know, um, and 70s, 80s even. Um, so um, I just remember, you know, as a kid, going down and um it just always held a special place in my heart yeah yeah and you lost your parents when you were very young right I was 14 I lost my parents and um it was tough in the sense that um I didn't feel that my church supported that uh, I didn't feel like I had the support of my community to help me. You know, here's a young kid, he lost his parents. And, you know, that's a, a trying time in your life right then. And if you don't have guidance, you know, the streets will call you, you know. And that's kind of what happened. But, you know, God's helped me, and I've been fortunate that I was able to go to college. I didn't graduate, but it, that experience getting out of the small town that I'm from helped so much meeting other people and seeing successful black people, black people that were on their way to success and inspired me. Yeah, and so you've been able to, how long have you and Cherie actually been together, raising three kids together, two who are now fully grown? Oh. Um, 17 years? 20, 20 years? 20, 20 years. years, yeah. Our daughter is 17, so 20 years. Right, okay. Yeah. So despite the fact that you didn't get a lot of support from what should have been your community at the time, your right. church, you still managed to come out the other end. How, how did you do that? How did you find the way? Well, I'm, I'm from a big family, a baby of uh, eight kids. And, um, you know, as the baby, you know, my brothers are big. You know, my mama used to put on the foot. It was almost like a fight for the last biscuit kind of thing, you know. So <laughs> it makes you tough as far as, you know. Um, and, again, I was angry at the world when I lost my parents. I was angry at God. I was, you know, I was just, like, mad. 
And I, you know, and this, yeah, I fought a lot and I was angry. I, I, that anger, it kind of drove me once I was able to control it, you know, and focus it on other things. When I saw other people that, you know, come from, you know, better situations um, than myself, it just, like I said, it inspired me to, to be better, you know. You see better, you be better. So and, uh, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you and uh, people that are positive. Because if you continue to stay in a bad environment, you know, industries or dealing with those type of people, you're not going to grow. And I try to tell young people today, you know, like, hey, you got to cut these people loose. They are not your friends. You know what I'm saying? You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And. It- you know, so much of this documentary, Black Beach, White Beach, is pointing out just the facts of the different treatment of African-American bikers versus white bikers. And I, I know there are going to be some white people listening to this who say, well, if you're trying to keep your your focus trained on the positive, why are you looking at the negative by trying to point out the differences in treatment there. And before you answer that question, I I want to play another clip from Black Beach, White Beach, which is one of the people in this documentary is taking the different treatment all the way back to slavery times and what that did to kind of the black psyche. So let's listen to this. Slavery did three things to us that we still suffer from today. All Africans in America suffer from this. Number one, slavery made us comfortable having no control, no power or authority over our reality. You come into a black community, we don't control the politicians. We don't control the businesses. We don't control the churches. We don't control the vote. We don't control the dollar. We control nothing. Now contrast that with Chinatown. Contrast that with Little Italy. Contrast that with a predominantly Latino community. Contrast that with a European Jewish community, okay? They control all of the systems and institutions in their communities. We control none of them, and we're comfortable with it. It's not just we don't have the control. We're comfortable having no control. So that's number one. The second thing, slavery destroyed our commitment to the collective. Black people are the most individualistic people in America. We wake up thinking about nobody but the people under our roof. As far as what's in the best interest of the black community, it is a second thought if it is to be a thought at all. There's no collective cohesion. Slavery stripped it. And the third thing that slavery did is it took away the guilt and shame that people naturally feel when their behavior works against the best interests of their people. There's a natural shame and a guilt that comes from people who love their group, who love their culture, love their community. When I engage in any behavior that does not benefit this community, there's a shame that I feel. African-Americans have no shame whatsoever for consistently doing things, engaging in behaviors that are detrimental to the collective. What happens to the group is irrelevant. I'm only concerned with what happens to me. And that is a clip from the documentary Black Beach, White Beach, two two different bike weeks that take place on an annual basis in South Carolina, Myrtle Beach and Atlantic Beach. And Ricky Kelly, documentary filmmaker, you included that clip. And it's interesting because it's 
it's an African-American man talking about this is kind of what has been imprinted on the black psyche and it's it's hurting the black community at the same time you're taking the white community to task for embedded racism and uh, just really unfair treatment compared to the white bikers. How do you kind of think about that in your own head when you think about your own struggles and the the limitations that have been imposed on you by a white supremacist culture versus your own responsibility and empowering yourself. How do you navigate those two seemingly polar opposites? Well, I believe in self-accountability, you know, first and foremost. And I wanted the, my audience to see both sides from a true perspective and not just, woe is us, you guys are locking us up and harassing us. I wanted them to see and, and, and to see that we're not perfect. You know, some of the things that have happened, you know, I mean, though it happens on both sides, we still have to be accountable for it. And, um, again, I'm just a... a big on um, accountability. You know, you can't just expect people to uh, feel bad for you if you're being bad and doing bad. So, um, Even though that's not what was actually happening in, right, in right. terms of the Black Bike Festival, but you're saying, you're saying people still need to look at themselves and right. take stock. Right. And our community needs to do that. And I got Dr. That was Dr. Lamar Johnson. And I wanted him to speak to why we are continuing to go after this treatment every year. You know, we're treated like crap. And you, a lot of people were saying, why do you keep going down there giving them your money? You know, they don't want you there. You know, just leave. Go to Florida. Go to Virginia. Go somewhere else, you know. and um, But I understood the significance of the, the, the history of the place, you know, and we can't just be run off just because somebody doesn't want us here, you know. Yeah. And I wanted uh, Dr. Umar's perspective on, you know, why are we continuing to go back and, and deal with this treatment, you know, and that's where he came from. Yeah. You've seen some change since this film came out. I mean, you said right. the mayor at the time, Mayor right. Rose, passed Rose, away. Yes, mm -hmm. what, what other changes have you seen? Well, we have a, a seat at the table now. You know, we, um, the NAACP, I matched with them when I first got down there. Um, Anson Osaka, he's an uh, the attorney for the NAACP, and what he would do was come down every year and monitor the event. And just so happened, the first day of shooting down there, I met him, and we just formed, you know, and, and I saw he was fighting for us, and we were both on the same, had the same um ideology as far as what was going on down there so um things have changed uh they they filed lawsuits against them they won a couple nothing major not millions and millions of dollars but again we have a seat at the table now so we can determine help determine how many police officers are there uh how long they're going to do the uh roadblock the 23 mile loop if they're going to do it at all uh just some of the the policing strategies we have a voice uh, which represents the community. So you get to talk about some of those strategies before the bike week and be right. instrumental right. in shaping mm -hmm. that policy. They have meetings every year um, with the city and the, the law enforcement, and they strategize on how we're going to control this event this year. And uh, for years, it's just been an iron fist, you know. And now that uh, the, 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 the laws have changed, or excuse me, the cases that we want has 
afforded us an opportunity to 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 be able to um, say, hey, maybe not so many police officers, or hold them back as and wait for something to jump off as opposed to them just being there harassed standing around harassing us you can just sit somewhere and 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 wait you're listening to coastline my guests today are documentary filmmakers ricky and sheree kelly we'll be back after this short break stay with us i'm rachel lewis hilburn for coastline Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Ricky and Cherie Kelly released the documentary film Black Beach, White Beach in 2017. It screened at Kuka Loris and the North Carolina Black Film Festival. Today, they're working on two new documentaries, one about chitlins, its origins, evolution, spiritual significance, the other about hip-hop black plumbers and why the trades might be a path to a fuller life of creative expression. But we're going to get to that Second, Cherie, you have a long history with chitlins. Tell us where you grew up and what your first encounter with chitlins was that you remember. I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, and I grew up on the farm. My grandparents had a farm, um, cows, chickens, and pigs. And I kind of looked at them more so as pets when I was younger. (laughs) I understand and then that. <laughs> as I grew up, then um, it became labor to feed them. So, um, being exposed to that, uh, chitlins was a part of the meal. Traditionally, they ke- killed the um, hog in the colder season, so it was like once a year that we would have chitlins. And to clean them was uh, the experience for me that I didn't really want to eat them in the beginning. And so, tell us exactly what part of the pig they are for those who um, don't so know. So chitlins are the intestines of the pig. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, that was a part of the process. Um, um, they would take the innards, and basically all of the pig was redistributed to everyone. So um, my grandfather would um, package the meat, and then whatever we couldn't package, it was cooked right away. But mostly chitlins was during the holidays, so... Um, you'd have to clean them and prepare them and get them ready for the cooking. And that, and that was, was your job as a kid? That was a shared job okay. <laughs> for the children. <laughs> so, yeah, cleaning the chitlins is not uh, very, it's not a nice way to say it, but you just kind of clean the links of the intestines and then flush it with the water hose. Because there's poop in there. That, that, that part. I had to say it. I wasn't <laughs> going to make you do it. Okay. Yeah, so there's that, that part. And then um, once you clean them, you rinse them. And that's just the outside. After you've done that and it's more manageable and you've gotten rid of most of the lining, you still have to clean them more. So we take them in the house and wash them again. And then my grandmother would um, review the cleaning process to make sure it was good cleaning. So... Because the feet get stuck in the intestines, so you have to clean all that out. So this was something that, as a kid, you found pretty repulsive, because you'd get the first time you explained this to me, you said it would they would come in like this bucket of oh yeah. Blood. So the ten pound bucket of blood was enough. So of course it's coming from the yard. So 
the the chitlins uh, literally in the bucket of blood is all you see and when you grab the intestine like poop is still in it so you had to push it out and just keep pushing and pushing till you got to the end and then once all of <laughs> by, by the time you process this you don't want to eat it right so you have no thought of like oh yeah i'm not eating this so then you rinse it and you know um cut it up and I guess the part for me was the cleaning part was disgusting. But when my grandmother cooked them, they smelled good. And I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can't eat that. It was just too repulsive. You couldn't separate the process, the process of, from, from the... Yeah, no. Yeah. But, yeah, for people to say they don't eat chitlins, I think you should give them a try. Well, you... Good. So then something changed for you when you were an adult? Yeah, so I actually miss eating chitlins. And so... Um, I still had to cook and clean them throughout my childhood, teenagehood, and up to an adult. Um, I think the part for me was I was I looked so forward to eating chitlins, and because you clean and cook all of these, you know, this big old bucket of chitlins, but you only get a little bit because it cooks down. Mm-hmm. So that was um, the part for me. Like I didn't really get to eat a lot of them growing up because. You don't buy a whole lot of them. So basically a taste was what I got. <laughs> right. And the drippings and the juices, um, that was, you know, you put that on the rice, made a nice gravy. So realizing that um, I kind of got away from eating chitlins, I just kind of waved away from it. Like, you know, it was it was a season where I didn't eat chitlins at all. And then I was like, well, I have to. Um, I was used to eating them, so I started back eating them seasonally. We prepared them during the holidays. So, yeah, as we got further, um, I guess closer to, you know, the kids coming up, they did not eat chitlins, so we didn't cook them as much. <laughs> so that's when I realized um, we're not eating chitlins as much. Like he and I did. And why did that matter? Why couldn't you just let chitlins go and have that be part of your past when you were a child on the farm? Why did you need to bring them back? I had to bring them back because it was tradition for me and my family. And I realized that it was something that I like to implement, you know, into the family. Like I, it was tradition. So it was just something that we did. It was something that we we were accustomed to as part of, you know, the meal. And it goes beyond your family. It's deep, the tradition. It is, yeah. Um, So for Chitlins, you know, it was culturally um, introduced in slavery to, you know, to the enslaved because they were given the less part of the pig and um, the master would take the better part of the pigs and then give the the white enslavers would do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, and give the innards to the slaves. And so they were able to take this food and make it better than what they thought it was. So we made the best of it um, using seasonings and herbs and um, different spices um, that kind of made it um, a dish that they implemented into eating as well. So, And so that has some really deep meaning for you. And there are some people who disagree with that. In um, the trailer for this documentary, and and we're going to hear a clip from it. Well, why don't we just listen to the clip now, and then I'll ask you about that. Sure. Chitlin' Strut! 
We are still eating chitlins today because we, first of all, they're delicious when made properly. That's the most important thing. But I think secondly, it's that search for nostalgia. Chitlins are the common term for chitterlings, which are fried or boiled pig intestines. Why would you still eat slave food and you're not a slave? I love chitlins. I sure do love chitlins. And that, uh, I think it was Larry Rennie Thomas, who is a well-known radio personality across the state. (laughs) He's a native Wilmingtonian. I think he uh, has come out with a book. But he says, why would you continue to eat slave food? And you have a really strong answer for that. Why why would you? Because it's part of our culture. It's something that, you know... um, we have to show tradition. Um, every other culture keeps tradition, so why should we set it aside? You know, um, looking at um, other cultures, they don't stop eating rice because it's not good for you, right? So chitlins is something that was a part of our ancestors' history. So I just felt that it's paying homage to our ancestors, just as my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother did. So when I was growing up um, on the farm, it was not just one generation of my family. Like, literally, my grandfather told me that his mother was a slave. So to know that history and to know that this is why we're doing this, this is why we're self-preserving on the farm, because, you know, we had to, you know, live for ourselves. So that's just part of where the base of that came from. And there's something transcendent, too, about chitlins, like the fact that it, on its face seemed like it was the worst part of the pig. Absolutely. <laughs> and yet... It tastes so good. What people could do with it. Absolutely. Spoke to their... Yeah. There are people that say they don't eat chitlins every day, but I, I do you eat sausage. Then, of course, you eat chitlins because that is the sack that's used to put in sausage. So, yeah. And both of you, when we spoke earlier about chitlins, you both talked about how... You felt maybe it was a little part of a, just a, a failing on your, you were surprised that your own daughter didn't understand the importance of them or the history or the tradition. Yeah, so I, I realized that I, I failed in not sharing the full experience and tradition with her in um, processing the chitlins. So I think had I done that, then she'd have a better understanding but only to just um, smell it while it's being prepared or to see it, you know, in the bucket when we purchase it. I mean, when you open the bucket and it's fresh chitlins, there is, it has a, you know, a certain scent to it. It's not the worst smell in the world, and it's, it's not the best smell, but it's not the worst. But just like any meat, you have to dock it up. The same way you smell beef when you open it and you smell, you know, pork chops when you open it, you smell chitlins. And so she could smell the aroma of the chitlins in the kitchen when I'm cleaning them and down to the part of me cooking them. And so she'd be like, oh, my God, no, like, let me know when you're done. I'm outside, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, you can't go outside, girl. This is the best thing of your life. Like, you got to taste these. She's like, oh, I'm not eating that. And so her dad goes, you know what? If you take a bite of chitlins, I'll give you $20. And so to see her face, like, when he said, now, you know, kids, teenagers, they love money, you know. And so she, he was like, she looked at him like $20. She was like, it's not worth it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> and she would not. And so he, she had the fork in her hand, and he gave her like a little four-ounce bowl. And he was like, just taste it. 
He was like, my auntie did it to me. You can do it. Just just taste it. Once you taste them, you'll love them. She almost threw up just looking at them. <laughs> and so that's what I realized. I was like, oh, my God. My husband was like, you know what? You got to tell this story because this is too much. And so I was like, yeah, you're right. Because I, I failed her in not sharing that experience. So yeah. it was really hard to... Um, get her to understand the reason why we pay homage to eating the chitlins and understanding the culture of chitlins itself. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, I want to, we have about five minutes left, and I want to make sure we get to Humble in the Jungle, which is also a documentary that's in the pipeline. Ricky, you're working as a plumber one day with this guy, Mike, who's also a plumber, and he said something, and you were like, Wait a minute. He said, yeah, we were, we were in a ditch working, and we were struggling to get this water main to stop running. And it, we both muddy. Water's every, muddy everywhere. And when we finally got the, the clamp on it to stop the thing, Mike said, yeah. And it just all came to me. It was so distinct because that was like, actually, that was Cool DJ Red Alert, which is his uncle who raised him, who that was his song. But it clicked on me. I was like, wait, now I know where I know this guy, you know, this guy from. And I said, you're Mike. And gee, and he was like, you know, like, he's very humble, very low key. And he was like, yeah, but don't. He didn't want our other employees to know that uh, that's who he is. He's like a Superman, actually, like Clark hitting Superman. He, when he works, he's Mike Smalls. And when he's on stage, he's a performer, Mike G. And he doesn't mix the two. Like, can you, for folks who don't know Hip Hop or the Jungle Brothers, can you just kind of explain how how big Mike G is? Right. He's uh, a part of the Native Tongue Posse, which bought us Queen Latifah, Q-Tip, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul. He actually named, gave Q-Tip his name, Q-Tip. Um, so Mike is from the early days of hip hop, Africa Bambada and the Bronx, um, and he's a legend. You know, um, they didn't get the financial and you know success that these young artists got today, but they set the foundation for artists to make these millions of dollars like they do. Like, just you know, the thing with Kanye is going on as far as clothing. Mike and them, they used to dress in a style, what was the name of that clothing store? Um, Banana Republic, right? With the khaki, the khakis and the hats and the boots and all. And today, they would, Banana Republic would want to use them and they would make money, you know, but back then they were just doing it for the love of hip hop. Right, yeah. And so one of the things, I mean, you're a filmmaker now, you're a plumber and you're not giving up plumbing, at least right. not yet. Right. But you're happy doing it and you sort of with Mike G or Mike Smalls I should say you kind of found something clicked for you and you said there's something here about being an artist and using a trade like being a plumber to facilitate that kind of a full life can you talk a little bit about why you're so grateful for the trade that you learned and why you want other people to consider that path Right. We went into this knowing that young people aren't getting into trades. They aren't teaching uh, it in schools anymore. And there's a shortage because the average plumber, the average tradesman is like 47 years old. And these young people aren't getting into trades. And it's afforded me a good life. I, I tell people all the time, if you work hard, if you 
dedicate five years of your life to this trade. In five years, you can make $100,000. If you work hard, work for a company, and then do side work and after work, if you, you just got to apply yourself. And you can still pursue your dreams, and that's what we wanted to encourage young people. Mike's a rap star. I'm a filmmaker. Uh, we have other people that have other lives outside of plumbing, and we try to tell these young people, everybody's not going to the NBA. Everybody's not going to uh, college. Everybody's not going to be a famous rap star. But while you pursue your dreams, you can work and provide, you know, a, a great life for your family. It's, it's like the ticket to the middle class if, you know, home ownership, business ownership. So we just want them to see us in this light of like, OK, look at them. Look what they're doing. I can do that, too. You know, it, it, but you have to humble yourself. And be able to get dirty and get out there and get up in the morning and work, you know. And and that's the real purpose of this film is um, to encourage young people to uh, get involved in trades. Because Mike's a great guy. He's the hardest working guy I've ever met in my life. Mike will go overseas because they're big over in Europe, right, because they respect old school hip-hop more than Americans do. But Mike will come back from a tour in, in Japan and land at 2 in the morning at the airport and get up at seven, five hours later, and crawl up under your house and fix your plumbing. No, you know, jet lagged and all. He's just the hardest working guy and the most humble person that I ever met in my life. So I was like, that's a great story, you know. And then it kind of evolved into me being a part of the story because we're both plumbers. But initially, it was solely about him. And you're both artists. You're the filmmaker yes. too. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's this edition of Coastline. I knew it would feel like not enough time. Ricky and Cherie Kelly, thank you both so much. Thank for you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, thank you Wilmington. They've embraced us. Kukaloris. Um, uh, we just love the city. Easy films. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fernell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline hosted by, or just send an email to coastline at whqr.org. You can find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. <laughs>